it's Gabby. I am so happy that you arrived here today. Thank you. This is My Possible Self, the mental health and wellness app that is helping users around the world manage their mental well-being. Today's guest is a trailblazer in the world of wellness for those suffering with chronic illness and disability. And she's also a pioneer and shining light for underrepresented and marginalised voices. Her name is Grace Quantock. She's a wonderful Welsh lady who hasn't let the hurdles of disability, illness or difference stop her from, as she herself puts it, living well in a society not designed for her. I can't wait for you to meet Grace, so let's jump straight in. I'm thrilled to be talking today to a badass psychotherapeutic counsellor, writer, researcher and wellness trailblazer. I already know this is going to be an amazing episode. Welcome to the My Possible Self podcast, Grace Quantock. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here, Borodav Pav. I'm delighted to be here. Was that something in Welsh you were saying then? Yes, I'm based in Wales, so I yeah. use myself bilingually. So I say hello, everybody, both in Welsh and Cymraeg. I can say snag in English. That's amazing. So, Grace, you work with complex trauma and marginalised and multi-marginalised identities. Uh, I'm also really interested to talk to you about your research in technology and trauma, so don't let me forget to ask you that later on. It was at the tender age of 18 you were diagnosed with a serious chronic illness, and I think this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what set you on the path of where you are today, which is helping people all over the world. Did you... In, when you were a kid growing up, did you want to get into the world of wellness and psychotherapeutic counselling or is my hunch correct? Your hunch is absolutely correct. Yeah, no, I I, I did not plan to do this. Um, as you say, I, got, I was first diagnosed when I was 18. I was later diagnosed with several other illnesses. It took a long time for me to be diagnosed at the beginning. I was first sick when I was 13. And so, you know, we were trying to understand what was happening. And, you know, as happens with many people with invisible in, invisible impairments and disabled people, um, all the tests were coming back negative. And, you know, I was thinking, like, is it just me? Am I just, you know, like other 18-year-olds are kind of running around and doing things. Am I just kind of secretly very lazy without having realised it? Like, what's going on? Um, so I kept, you know, trying to push myself. Hot tip, don't do that. Mm. Um, did not work. I got mm. worse. And so when I was diagnosed, you know, I, I was at university. Um, I managed to complete university, but, you know, I was very, I had a lot of support. I mean, my, my tutor brought a bed into the exam room for me and I took my final exams from bed. Wow. What an yeah. incredible tutor. I know. You know, that I, I had that support to do that, but then I had um, six months and I didn't know what to do. Like I, I planned to, before that, when I was at university, I had, um, you know, been asked to do a defil and to tutor. And so I've been going down a very academic path and I've wanted to go into lecturing and librarianship. I couldn't do that at the time. And I kind of thought, I don't know what to do now because um, I, I thought, well, I guess I'll just take a master's from the Open University. I don't really know what else to do. So I had six months to wait until I could sign up for an MA. And I thought, you know what, let's see, let's just see if in this six months, I can 
figure out what seems to make my health worse and if I can reduce that and if I can figure out what seems to ease or ameliorate my symptoms or help me manage them better and let's see if we can just add more of that in and what might happen and I assume this is taking a more holistic approach because you'd seen all the doctors and you, you just thought I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of take my own life into my own hands in a way and see what I can do for me rather than waiting for other people yes no absolutely well also actually to in some ways bring some order to the level of numbers of doctors I was seeing because the other thing was at that moment when I was kind of so desperate to 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 to, be, to recover to be cured you call it cure seeking when you're just kind of cycling through that you know people say to me you should see this doctor and this specialist and this private person you should go and see this practitioner and this GP is really good and so I was kind of going trying to go everywhere and so what I did was actually I started to make lists I took two weeks and I made a list of all the things that I thought I should be doing or that I could do or that I needed to do or that I wanted to try or that I'd heard of okay so like drink more water basic one but mm -hmm. like I couldn't lift a cup independently so that was actually a tricky one yeah um or you know see x specialist in y hospital see if I can get referred to them that would be a long process. And having it all down in one place and then actually combing through that and saying, what thing would make the biggest difference if I begin with it? Not only gave me something to work on, but it also meant that as a younger disabled person, I was getting deluged with recommendations for cures. By people I knew, by people I hadn't heard of who found my address and posted things to me. Don't wow. do that people should do that not okay um, is it a, by, i'm sorry i've just got to stop you there because um i've been to wales and i'm just wondering if is it is it a culture thing as well because you know welsh i mean i don't want to generalize but friendly lovely wanting to help do you think it's like you know where you live and your environment is anything to do with everybody trying to like get involved which isn't a bad thing but i'm i'm just i'm curious I think so some of this period I was living in England so I think some of it ah. some of it for me I thought was the shock value of like so ill so young um <laughs> all right actually, but you know, people are there is you know I live in the valley of Wales very friendly um so yeah it's um it's wonderful but like if you're not from here it can be a bit startling my partner's from London and when they first moved here they say everyone's people are gonna mug me I said what are you talking about I, I don't hang on, what, what, what's happening? I've I, I, I missed something. And they were asking questions which he experiences as pre-mugging questions. Like when someone sidles up to you and is like trying to figure out if you're related to somebody or you're in kind of a, a part of an area that they could get in trouble with if they kind of mess with you. Whereas wow. here, they were like just trying to figure out how they knew you and kind of right, like, right, right. Yeah. What, what the link is, we must have a link. So let's figure out the link. Right, um, yeah. So there is some of that, but I think... There was a lot of, um, you know, I, I started using a wheelchair when I think I was 18. You know, I was, it was very visible that I was sick. Um, mm -hmm. And it attracted, a, you know, not attracted, people gave me a lot of unwanted attention mm -hmm. because of that, like when I was out in public. So in terms of, and just going back to what you're saying about healing for yourself, like 
were there any surprises and are there any sort of things that you've found across the board have helped clients that you work with and you um, advise and guide? Well, I think one of the big things, this is something I teach in the Phoenix Fire Academy, which is a, a, a course I run for people who want to live well with pain and illness. Um, we actually now teach the process of making your healing blueprint in your list and figuring out what a plan looks like for you. Because, you know, what I did find is that a lot of people who work in wellness are telling and to some extent selling mm. their personal recovery story. Mm. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, that mm. happens a lot. Almost the same way in like the, the diet plan, that kind yeah. of thing. Exactly, spot on, 100%. And this is something, you know, I struggled with as, as kind of a, a teenager in my late teens because I was following and trying to buy all those things and then they wouldn't work for me. Mm. So then I ended up feeling kind of even more broken because I'm because she apparently was like me and now she's running down the beach and I have osteoporosis and muscle loss and my tendons have shortened so much because I haven't walked in four years. So, you know, I, 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 was, I, I felt like, you know, really like nothing will work for me. I'm trying everything. And then when I realized that, you know, so much of health, people really want to make it personal because we want to take the power into our own hands and mm -hmm. that's really understandable mm -hmm. but it's a little bit like um when we when we try and survive anything very very difficult often you'll find people will say it's in some way my fault because that gives an illusion of control and if it's in some way our fault that means we can figure out the the, the, the idea is we can figure out what we did wrong and stop doing it and then the bad thing won't happen anymore but actually of course it's a lot more complex than that so you know, there may well be lifestyle factors that we can shift that may make our life easier, that may make our symptoms easier to manage, that may actually cause some improvement potentially, it could be, but it's, there's lots of environmental, historical, genetic, social factors, factors around socioeconomic class, around poverty, around access to health services, around medical racism, around medical trauma, uh, around what language you speak, around what class you are, how much you can advocate for things, what you know to ask for, so many factors, and so many of those we don't have any control over. And so my sense was that when I started realizing that actually the stories other people were selling were very, very specific to them. Yeah. It, freed me from trying to follow somebody else's recovery journey and that's one of the things that I try and teach instead of saying this worked for me I recommend it for you instead to say well let's notice the wider parameters here mm. notice the narratives that are playing into how we approach our health and actually examine them and say is this true for me is this what I want to follow mm. When we met over Zoom at that writing workshop, this kind of subject matter was finding the question at the heart of our manuscripts or our books. Um, and one of your questions was, how can we learn to live well in a society not designed for us? And that's sort of stuck with me. So is it like getting to the root of this answer which is like what you do when you're working with your clients? I think, well, I think it's certainly a big question for me. It's something that's been part of my own healing journey. It's definitely a theme that runs through a lot of my work. Um, because, you know, 
there's a lot that there's, there's a process in it and one of the questions I think first to address is am I um is it kind of where do we locate or orient the issue so often kind of medical model locates the problem in us in our bodies so I have anxiety, I have PTSD, I have bad mental health, I have joint problems, I have X, Y, Z, it's, whatever it might be, it, you locate it in that individual's body. Whereas, you know, psycho, psychoanalytic work, particularly kind of um, people like James Hillman, locate such issues in the wider society. So, well, you know, racism comes from the wider society, from interpersonal and um, structural and institutional, institutional systems that we create, that we perpetuate, and that we play out, play out with each other on an individual level. Um, you know, that people, we build issues in. So like, for example, you know, I myself have kind of struggled in terms of traveling before the pandemic, because um, when I went to travel, you may or may not know this, I don't know, but in, uh, in the UK at the moment, um, at least in Wales and England, there is only one or two wheelchair spaces per train. Right. And per bus. So only one wheelchair user is able to travel at a time. And you think about in, in big cities, that must be a nightmare. It is a nightmare. It has often been me and several of the wheelchair users trying to figure out who gets to go home first. And we're like, right, whose appointment is first? Who is in so much pain? Like, we'll figure out who needs to get, who gets the seat. Because obviously, I would, of course, want everybody to go. But um, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I'm jostling for it. But, you know, there's this moment that, yeah. that you often have maths where you're kind of figuring out what it is. Um, and so, you know, but what would happen is you also had to book your travel. So you couldn't just turn up spontaneously. You could, you got shouted at really by the staff because you, you were supposed to have booked apparently. Mm. So I, every Sunday I would spend kind of two to three hours booking all my travel for the week because I was doing a lot of traveling. Um, because I had to book each each um, journey individually with the times it would be. Um, and, you know, every time I rang up, the train people would say, the wheelchair space is gone. You should have booked earlier. And I would say, your solution is for me to compete with other disabled people for the small amount of space you have allotted us. Mm. But trains do not spring spontaneously, mm -hmm. fully formed from the earth. Somebody chose to actually reduce the number of wheelchair seats in the new trains. Also, the number of bicycle spaces they've chosen to reduce. Um, so, so they could fit more seats in and maximize profit. But so actually for me, emotionally, it was very, very, it's a great toll to spend chunks of my day and then chunks when I was there getting kind of um uh, struggling with ramps didn't turn up or I'd get left on train that the train would go and I would be stuck on it until the next station and various kind of difficulties some of which could be very upsetting some of which exposed me to, to hate crimes and, and unsafe non-consensual touch and treatment from people and we could kind of orient some of that in in me and say you know I'm disabled I'm a wheelchair user I struggle with that. But instead I look and say, well, how I respond to it is something that I can work with. But at the end of the day, it's still actually going to be anybody in that situation would find it difficult because if I if you trapped anybody on a train and took them off from the station they were supposed to get off at. Oh, absolutely. They would yeah. Well, I think about, and because you mentioned that your partner's from London. Uh, and I assume you spent some time in London and I think about the underground or, you know, the subway. And 
I, I don't recall there being very many stops uh, with like elevators or any kind of wheelchair access. So I would imagine like the underground is pretty much out. Yeah, it's not something that I choose to use and that um, it can just, yeah, I mean, like one time I think I was driving off station and they didn't have a lift, but they had this thing that was like a seat on top of two kind of big caterpillar traps, like something a digger would have. And the caterpillar traps rode the stairs down with me balanced in them in my chair. But of course it was such a huge spectacle yeah. that everybody had to clear the stairs in the station, which is a huge thing to do in a tube station yeah. to get yeah, everything yeah, yeah. away. Absolutely. Then I had yeah. kind of rounds of people just watching me. Mm. Um, and this was on the way home from a medical appointment. Like I didn't particularly want any of this to happen, but again you know it's that there's this moment of acknowledging oh wait actually our society isn't designed for everybody and a moment where we actually recognize oh hold on somebody designed this train somebody designed this tube station and it it wasn't me and it wasn't somebody like me and like you know from from my reading I know that you know architects for example are report in the Guardian suggested they're overwhelmingly uh, young white men uh, without children um, and something like less than one in ten architect um, is a person of colour um, and the numbers are getting worse not getting better. And this is if you're for the UK? The UK. Yeah wow discrimination rears its ugly head in many ways age, sex, race, class, religious beliefs a person's body, parenting, the list is is endless. And it's no surprise that this is going to seriously impact a person's mental health. Do you have a, maybe a couple of examples of stories that you could share or that you feel comfortable sharing? I suppose it's like I want to highlight some, um, I don't want to say the word common issues, but issues that maybe like we should be more considerate about. So, for example, example, um, it's very common when people are newly diagnosed um, for people to uh, really experience a lot of um, shaming and blaming and questioning. And there can be a process that's almost like the grief process, almost like Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, not in that they have become disabled, but as much as the life they're no longer able to access because the world is built in an inaccessible way for them. So lots of things they potentially still could do, but are now said to be not possible to do or are literally inaccessible for people. Um, so uh, for example, sometimes people will, um, uh, say we have a young person who's kind of 19 and um, say they've just been diagnosed with invisible illness that perhaps involves a lot of pain, a lot of fatigue. This is also going to be potentially a story that um, would resonate with with, stuff, with with people who are living with long COVID because it can be a similar process. So there can be this, this moment of, um, you know, realising that you've been kind of thrown off your path and a deep intensity to return. So then you can see like a lot of cure seeking where people are just cycling through options. Um, often when they have been um, not uh, held appropriately by the wider medical community, they can find themselves kind of on the margins. So sometimes trying kind of more and more esoteric cures. That actually often gets made fun of quite a lot 
because you know like we now know people drink green juice and that's kind of a thing and we all know about that but you know many years ago when I was first doing this as an anti-inflammatory to try and kind of bring down some of my inflammation and my pain levels along with painkillers along working with, with my doctors um people would come up to me and say because I had like the mason jar which now is fashionable and people would say what's that is that pond water have you got tadpoles in there see um, you're a trendsetter well we call it troubles and wellness there you go but actually you know that kind of misunderstanding and disbelief and so people sometimes will really try to kind of um jump back to 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 and they'll say you know if i can just get back to where i was three months ago if i can just get back to where i was six months ago, if i can just get back and they're kind of up against the glass of their former life trying to get in the difficulty is you know when you've gone through something incredibly difficult it you often emerge on the other side a different person, not a totally different person, but you know, something has shifted. It can sometimes feel like an innocence before we were innocent of um, all the things our bodies did without us having to think about them. And now you have to calculate how you get from one side of a room to the other, or whether you can wash your hair and do a, and do a video call, or whether you have to do one or the other. Um, and it can be, you know, a real kind of shift for people to go through. The expectations around what things should look like can really harm people, I think, when they're in that stage. Because there's lots of moral um, uh, high ground put on doing certain things. So, like, um, you know, there's this sense that uh, you often, you gradually see these articles come out which say, oranges peeled and packed in plastic I mean why would you are you lazy and like I am with you on the environmental grounds I am you know I I understand that but what people aren't getting is that for example I can't peel an orange independently so if I don't have a care or support person with me um, or PA and they may have been cut so often we don't then what do you do um and so you know often these things are there so that people can access things but you know there's so much kind of uh, moral um pressure put on if you can't cook your own food like you're you're fantasized you're made to feel like a baby and I think well hold on a second I can't use a stove independently that that's true but can you sew can you weave your own cloth can you knit can you grow your own vegetables if not isn't Tesco or Walmart basically an accessibility aid for you because you're dependent on them, just like I'm dependent on, you know, somebody to help prepare my food or to access food in a way that needs to have preparation. That actually, you know, in the society we live in, a lot of it's built up in certain ways, but some of them we take for granted. Of course we need a car, of course you need a tube, of course you need a subway. Whereas some are, are said to be morally bankrupt and wrong. And actually we start to look at those and say, well, do we believe that's true? If you don't hoover your house every day, does that make you a morally terrible person? <laughs> yeah. Or, is it something that we set up at some point and we all agreed to, to some ex to greater less extent? And then we go back and think, actually, for me personally, that's not that important. This makes me think about, um, and I'm going to read it out because it's taken directly from the CDC website. Um, for any of our listeners who are outside of the US, the CDC is the National Public Health Agency of the United States. Uh, I'm just interested to know your thoughts on it. So a recent study found that adults with disabilities and other chronic health conditions report experiencing more mental distress than those without disabilities. In 2018, an estimated 17.4 million adults with disabilities 
experienced frequent mental distress defined as 14 or more reported mentally unhealthy days in the past 30 days. Frequent mental distress is associated with poor health behaviours, increased use of health services, mental disorders, chronic disease and limitations in daily life. During the COVID-19 pandemic, isolation, disconnect, disrupted routines and diminished health services have greatly impacted the lives and mental well-being of people with disabilities. I would like to add that this is probably only a fraction of the right figures because not everybody has the luxury of healthcare over here because it is insanely expensive. I mean, it makes your toes curl. Um, but just kind of piggybacking off what you were just talking about and linking that with a person's mental health, it's, it's a problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like when many people hear these figures, they interpret them as you're sad because you're disabled. Now, I co-authored British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy's guide for therapists on how to work with disabled people and disabled clients. And, you know, in nowhere in that guide, I, I believe, do we ever talk about how sad, like, you're disabled, it's made you sad, now do you want to talk about how you're sad because you're disabled? So of course people may grieve the life that they had, the life that they wanted, may struggle with the impairments, they have, you know, chronic pain, difficulty, I'm not saying any of that, some people will, may well, you know, and do feel very sad and, and, and grief about disability, but overall our experience has been that both as, as a disabled person and, and in my clinical work, that it is much more around the, the society and how everything is set up rather than just being you're sad about kind of being medical model broken in inverted commas. So it's like I once interviewed um, uh, also who was the first disabled woman to pose in Playboy magazine in the US um, and she posed in her wheelchair. Um, and she uh, said that, you know, one day she was crying and somebody came over to her and said, um, oh, why are you crying? Is it because you're in a wheelchair? And she said, no, it's because my boyfriend left me. And the person said, oh, did he leave you because he couldn't cope with your disability in your wheelchair? She said, no, it's, I le he left me because I slept with his best friend. And the person said, right, did you sleep with his best friend because you were so upset about your wheelchair and your disability? I mean, this, this is a true story, but like this is, this is what, it is Ellen Stoll, who's the person, but um, this is kind of that, that idea that everything, all the problems are located and oriented in our bodies. So we are the problem as disabled people. Whereas actually the access to resources and the ability to be able to be ourselves and be, be free in the world is you know very very um, reduced by the disablism across society both in structural issues institutionally and at interpersonal levels like how you know before the pandemic when I would go out I might get asked 15 times in a shopping trip what was wrong with me why I used a wheelchair if I'd walk again if I'd have children if I was born in a wheelchair which is explain just, that one <laughs> utero wheelchair who knows yeah I am dumbfounded that that many people are that ignorant but I I want to kind of don't like the word role play but like so I'm I'm a person on the bus or I'm on the street and I see someone who is different to me however that presents maybe it's the same sex couple holding hands um, maybe it's somebody in, in a wheelchair, maybe it's a person with different coloured skin. I feel 
And I don't know why anybody would feel this way, but I feel like I've got the right to approach them um, and say to them, oh, what's, what, what's wrong with me? Grace, you're, you're that person that's going to respond. <laughs> and again, I'm kind of generalising, but that person who's ignorant is, is going to be ignorant to various sort of minority groups, I would assume. What, what do you say to that person? Well, to be fair, that depends if they're the first person or the 15th. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and it depends like how much pain I'm in that day and how kind of a day I'm having. And, you know, okay. when I was 18, for example, obviously, I, you know, yeah. I was struggling a lot more. I was kind of much, much more blunt. Whereas now, like if it's the first person, I would say, um, why do you ask? Yeah. Or um, sometimes if I'm kind of in the middle of the day, if it's like kind of the seventh person, I'm like, I'm sorry, what did you just ask me? You asked me what's wrong with me. And just, I repeat it back to them, just give them a beat. Just let them hear themselves. Mm. Or I say, I'm sorry, I, do I know you? Where, I don't, where, where did, do you go to my, my acting class? I just make something up, you know, do I, I, I don't, I don't remember you. And then it's just to cue them in to say like, you need to back off. Um, but if it's the 15th person, sometimes I've just been like, I just get really, I, I really simple. And I say, I use a wheelchair because I'm disabled. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really, kind of really 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 straight to the point but the thing is we all kind of um joke because um we make up kind of funny answers amongst ourselves but what we could say or would say um I haven't actually used any of these because I think they might end up attracting more um attention in a way that might be difficult so like I was in a hotel once and I was in uh with a with a colleague of mine I was in the lift pre-pandemic and um a, 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 an older white man stepped into the lift um it was myself as a, as a white queer disabled woman and my colleague was a young woman of color and um the man looked at us stared at us both really kind of obviously and then he said to me your wheels take up too much room you why are you here like this and I'm sorry at that point I, I wouldn't do this again because I, I worried for myself, my colleague at risk. But at the time I said, I have to take up a lot of space because I have to compete with men's egos, don't I? <laughs> Preach. Did, did, to be fair, he did kind of, yeah, step back on that. So we kind of make up all the... My favourite um, comment, which one of the members of my um, postcards from the margins.com community that I run, she said, um, when people say to her, why are you in a wheelchair? She just looks really sad and she says, I kicked a nun. <laughs> Dead pants well you know ask a stupid question yes one of of my things I I I have actually done people are the 15th person I've just gone really kind of blank and kind of kind of um Englished up my accent and gone have you heard of those sex swings (laughs) (laughs) it has to be really incongruous um love it um okay I want I want (laughs) to I want to reverse this now, continuing with, the, I guess, our role play. So I'm a person listening to this podcast. I suffer from a crippling chronic illness. I'm really struggling. I don't have a lot of expendable money. Some days it's a struggle to get out of bed. Um, there's no miracle cure, obviously, and I'm kind of resigned to always feeling like this. Grace, what do you say to me? Okay. I would say I'm glad you're here and listening but I care about you. It's tough. I know it's tough. And I'm sorry it's so tough. And you don't deserve this. And none of this is your fault. And I'm hoping for you that there will be days when it's a little bit easier. And days when you can access 
a little bit of resource to try and find a bit of a way forward. But that might not be every day. And that won't make you a failure. And it won't make me you bad because every day that you are you, you are surviving whatever you do to do that. I can respect that. I can, I can appreciate that you need it and take care of you. And if I can be a support, just let me know. Wow. That's incredible. Okay, I want to move on to a point uh, when we were going back and forth on our emails um, uh, that you wanted to touch upon, and that's racism and white supremacy in the wellness industry. I read last night an article that was in, <clears throat> it was from two and a half years ago, is in um, Marie Claire. The title of the piece was The Wellness Industry Isn't Making You Well. And then the byline read, Ex exclusionary, expensive, and too trendy for its own good. So I'm very, very interested to know your thoughts here. Yeah, thank you, absolutely. Well, firstly, you know, to acknowledge that as a white woman, I notice where this is happening, and um, where, where I, I can see it, and I'm working to work in an anti-racist way. I really recommend people follow and, and find out authors of colour who speak on this issue in their own experiences. For example, I could put Le Erin Olsa, Leila Saad, Gillian Kilani, um, Nikash Shukla writes about some of the appropriation and the good immigrant anthology wonderfully. But you know, what one thing that I have noticed and seen in my uh, around this um, very much has been firstly, you know, there is the commercialization and commodification of wellness is kind of really sought. You know, when I was first practicing it, nobody had really kind of heard of wellness. I think I was one of like five wellness bloggers in the UK. We had to import our Vitamix from the US. I got it on eBay when like the pound was low against, it was like a hundred dollars, which to me would took so much money, but you know, it, it, it was wildly cheap because they're now like 2000 quid or something. But, you know, it was kind of nobody had heard, had heard of it here. And yet, you know, we're seeing it become really big. And what I'm also seeing is so much of it is stolen and appropriated and exoticized and then sold back as a productivity tool. So it's stolen, appropriated from communities and cultures of color, from uh, South and East Asian uh, communities and countries very, very often. Um, and then there's this kind of productivity element to it. So, you know, you can't be stressed because we gave you that half day mindfulness workshop. And so you must be just failing at self-care. And so the fact that the company might have doubled your workload or cut any kind of pay or taken away all of your resources is just ignored because they gave you that mindfulness app and they're still paying for it every month. So you must not be using it right. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, self-care has kind of been whittled down to this individual practice which it can be but I think self-care is also about collective care and you know Audre Lorde um, wrote you know about that caring for myself is not self-indulgence it's self-preservation and that's an act of political warfare but she wrote that as a black lesbian femme surviving cancer so that is very different to me as a white woman talking about self-care. Sure, as a disabled queer white woman who's, you know, I mean, during COVID, um, at one point in the pandemic, uh, I've, we had the criteria of who would get life-saving treatment. I did not pass that criteria. So were I to have contracted COVID, they would not have attempted life-saving treatment on me. They would not have given me ventilator. Oh my, I'm just uh, uh, gobsmacked as you can see in here. But, uh, like, why was that even something that was made known to you 
not the same. Do, do you know what I mean? It was like, oh, by the way. Well, it, it, it was made very public. So firstly, when the hospitals in Wales released what, what most of you find a chilling video, which I think they thought was going to be comforting, where this, this, this doctor was saying, you know, to say to people, you think you've been forgotten. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. You have forgotten us. Continue. And he said, you know, if you contract COVID, we won't do things that harm you, like use ventilators. The video went on, but I actually couldn't watch it past there. And then the criteria came out from the government of, of, of the, 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 the frailty test and the levels of assessment as to what you could do at each level, how far you could walk, what you could lift, what you could do in a daily activity. And I failed the cutoff point for getting life-saving treatment. So at that point, I asked my partner and said, if I were got a bit to contract COVID, you know, don't take my wheelchair to the hospital, carry me in, tell them I can't walk because of COVID, tell them, tell, like, sign me under my, my married name. Like, I want to live. I don't want to take anybody else's ventilator, but I also don't want somebody to look at my wheelchair and say, we're not going to bother trying saving her because because she's disabled and it's not worth it. And I have actually been, a doctor actually said those words to me, they said it's not worth it. So, yeah, I mean, so actually in some instances, obviously it does feel actually like you're trying to survive under something. And you know, sick, the Office of National Statistics in the UK has um, shown that 60% of the people who died of COVID in the UK have been disabled people. Obviously we know the communities of color and black and minority ethnic communities have been disproportionately affected and that there is, um, you know, medical racism and structural cuts and the kind of uh, the way that uh, communities have been marginalised and had resources um, diverted from them or, or not allowed to get to them. There's huge kind of parts of that um, on kind of a very systemic level. But even so, even with that, you know, that, that, is, that is the case. You know, I still am aware that I can't appropriate Lord's words because, you know, I'm not a, a Black lesbian writing at the time she was writing. But so instead, it, it's noticing, you know, what is it for me? Because it is very tempting, I think, to just kind of say, oh, it's self-care. And, you know, what is self-care for us? And that's something I think each person needs to kind of work with and kind of parse out. And that can be really tricky because we get a lot of now with the wellness industry, we get huge amounts of messages about what self-care is. And quite a lot of them are about buying something, mm. um, which is tricky for us and handy for them yeah consumerism and capitalism steps in yeah yeah I just I'm sorry I'm still kind of reeling from obviously it was the doctor who delivered this information to you but it's not even I would imagine doctors that are making if it's a decision that's made widespread it's you know government playing god the criteria was at government level but individual clinicians could have um you know that they, they could make a call but obviously you have unconscious bias conscious bias playing in and yeah. like we also had the scandal here in wales where um gps were um and others were putting um do not attempt resuscitation orders onto people with learning disabilities as a blanket uh protocol so people got letters through the post and, and, and some other conditions people got letters through the post that said because in the US, my understanding is you have to agree to a DNR. In the UK, you don't. In the UK, the doctor makes a decision about the do not attempt resuscitation. You are not consulted as a patient. You will be told that they have put an order on you. The doctors wrote to people and they got a letter through the post that said, you now have a do not attempt resuscitation order on your file. We will not attempt resuscitation. And you can't, it, it's, it's a clinical decision. So you can try and fight it legally, but 
it's not like in the US when I'm standing is sometimes people feel coerced into them or kind of pushed into them. Here, they don't even have to try and push you. They can literally just make a clinical decision on your behalf. I mean, wow. I, I guess I naively thought, having lived on both sides of the pond in the UK and in America, I find the medical industry in America ugly. I cannot get my head around having grown up in a, in a culture where everybody has access to... It might take you a while to get an appointment, everybody has access to healthcare, whereas here it is only for the privileged, those that can afford it. I, I don't mean, you know, I really recognise the problems in America's healthcare system. When I was in hospital most recently, I think I puzzled everybody in the A&E majors waiting room because I was going, did you know, if I was in the US, this would already have cost me about 15,000. Mm. I'd be bankrupt by now. By now, I'd be medically bankrupt and we all yeah. would be. But look, NHS. So nobody knew what I was talking about. I just think anybody else understood how expensive it is. No, so, yeah, it's absolutely right. I think that's why it's like over 90% of the... US population are in debt and and I think the biggest contributing factor to that is wellness and medical industry because it's so expensive I mean we're going down a real trail here but like you know just to eat well here is so expensive it must be two three times the cost of like organic produce as as what it is in the UK um but I will say having heard that story in terms of, yeah, again, people playing God. I love the NHS, work for NHS. Um, and, you know, with, within all healthcare systems, historically, we have, you know, the way we taught, the way we understood, you know, there's what um, Caroline Corrida Perez, the author of Ms. Visible Women, called the default male of medical research. So, she looked at um, medical texts um, and building on studies where the male body parts were the default. So there was a study which looked in, you know, medical textbooks from top universities in the US and the UK, and something like 80% of the body parts featured for things like um, the uh, circulatory system or uh, the um, uh, something to do with your lungs, for example, all male body parts featured. Um, so, you know, women are underrepresented in clinical trials. Um, when we are in clinical trials, we're not tested through a menstrual cycle. If we're a woman who has a menstrual cycle, people with menstrual cycles aren't tested throughout the menstrual cycle. Men are the predominant, I mean, cis, cis white men are the predominant research participants in studies. And when we report on those studies, it fails to note that we aren't included and they find us extrapolated out to everybody. So I mean, these, these wider systemic issues, like quite frankly, I would only appear in those medical textbooks as like the worst case scenario. And all that impacts when people go to treat you because, you know, then if, if that's what they've studied and that's how they've grown up. And like, sometimes when I work, you know, I'm the first, I'm one of the first generations of disabled people in the UK to live my whole life outside an institution. I've seen of two attempts to institutionalize me so far, but that then means that many of the people who are making these laws, for example, or making these decisions because of their age, they grew up as children in a world where people like me were institutionalized, we weren't free which means they never met people like us. So I've had multiple people in significant positions tell me, you are the first disabled person I've ever worked with professionally. Wow. Which will inform 
their values and how they make decisions and how they treat things. So like mm. one thing I did in the pandemic in the first wave was email every single person I could think of who I have never met and said, you know, when you thought that I was quite bright and you said that you thought that I might be part of the future and that you thought I was good for Wales, it's mm. all people like me that you have just said our lives are extendable. Now, I don't think I'm particularly special, but if they'd met me and they were at least if I, that was a human contact that mm. could try and get them to think more widely, because of course, I, you know, was bedbound for a year. For, for a year, I was housebound for six years. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't sit up independently. I was in no way less brilliant and wonderful and, and beloved mm. at that time than I am now, just because I can be productive, product like productive in a way that capitalism likes, because I can write things and I can do things like this today. It doesn't make me any better. Mm. Um, it does mean that I am more recognisable, which meant that I had a position I could use to advocate for all the people who are now as I was a couple of years ago. Yeah, It's systemic and it's hidden. So I wouldn't expect you to know, but it impacts people's lives every day. This stuff wasn't a long time ago. This stuff is very, very real. We still have people who are being held in institutions in the UK and treated in unsafe ways. We still have that happening today. It's not past. I think it's what's scary is it's probably more concealed now than even then because morally we know that's not right even if we're doing it. I admire you so much, Grace. And like, what motivates you to keep fighting the good fight? And you speak so articulately and brilliantly. And I just think people that are maybe in a minority group or um, are um, a, a disabled person or, you know, that are struggling. So I don't think there's enough people like you that think like you. I want to know what inspires you to go up against the white male machine, you know? No, thank you. And, you know, what inspires me is, is my community and the people that I love. You know, I, I believe in us and, and I know that we have a right to life and a right to our futures. And I couldn't do anything else but this because, and because, you know, I see it every day. You know, some historical psychotherapy kind of orients all the problems in a room with the people. So if somebody were to come and say, um, I feel upset about, you know, the climate crisis in my area, the therapist might think, what is happening in your history that makes you upset about the climate crisis? Whereas I would think, okay, what's happening for you in your area that you're exposed to this? And hey, there may also be something in your history that particularly comes up, but also perhaps you live in a place which has got narrower streets and fewer trees and there's less shade and the concrete heats up more and so you get higher heat spots in that area of the city and so perhaps actually it really is hotter where you are and that's really really hard for you so you know I couldn't work with people I work with and and not hear their stories and their truth because I see it every day in my work um I think you know a lot of us see it and hear it but people actually push it back because somebody said to me the other day um that, you know, some politicians, um, kind of Trump-esque, kind of Boris Johnson-esque, they say to people who are struggling, look, it's not your fault. All you need is a hand up and you can get to the top of the pile. We'll give you that hand up. And that's really tempting. Whereas I say, there's a whole systemic inequity and it's been going on for generations. Like, who wants to hear that? Like, that's really sad. Um, and yet I'm also saying it's not your fault. But what I'm trying to say is, let's figure this out together and see what resources we can use and how we can come forward. 
cultural appropriation. So I am going to throw my hands up and say I actually Googled this to make sure I used the right words. Cultural appropriation refers to the use of objects or elements of a non-dominant culture in a way that doesn't respect their original meaning, give credit to their source or reinforces stereotypes or contributes to oppression. This can be controversial when members of a dominant culture appropriate from minority cultures. Um, so this is another point that you wanted to uh, to address. How have you seen cultural appropriation be detrimental to a person's mental well-being? Absolutely. So I think, you know, when people see aspects of their experience and their culture being tokenized, and also, as, as, as we said with mindfulness, being weaponized, so actually being stolen from them and then used to uh, actually harm them. Uh, so, you know, uh, Nikesh Shukla has a fantastic essay on this in The Good Immigrant about, um, you know, I, as a, a, a brown man living in, in England, he, um, you know, would find people say a lot to him, namaste, namaste. And he's, you know, kind of people, especially people who into yoga, and he'd say, but it just, just means hello, like it just means hello, like it's not, it's not the thing you're making it. These are what's called microaggressions. And people often think microaggression means small as in it's not a very big thing. My understanding of it is that it's micro because it happens between individuals, whereas the macro would be happening on a systemic level. So if we saw that, for example, um, the royal family employs very few people of color, always has, and their kind of rates on it are very, very, very low, that would be also a macro issue because as an institution, they are discriminating. It's from, from what we're hearing, or at least from the reports, obviously, I, I don't know, I haven't been discriminated against by them, but you know, from these reports that, that, that they're doing that, that's like a macro thing. But then on an individual level, it's the micro, it's happening between humans. But you get the buildup of this. So with disability, um, Dr. Donna Reeve, the, the theorist writes about a psycho-emotional disabilism, where you know, these constant microaggressions actually build up. So we've said that as a disabled person, I go outside and um, I get a lot of uh, unwanted touch, um, non-consensual touch, hate speech, hate crimes, inappropriate comments, sometimes, you know, particularly difficult things. And almost it doesn't matter if I do a journey without one of those, which is incredibly rare, because the threat that it may happen and when will it happen? And the accumulation of all the times it has happened is enough to, to actually cause that level of distress. So if every time you go somewhere or you see something, you get asked about your food, you get the lunchbox moment as many immigrant families and immigrant communities have described, are people making fun of your food and asking you questions about it and doing these things. And there's some fantastic writers out there, of course, as I say, there's The Good Immigrant, there's The Good Immigrant USA, both books that talk a great deal about these things. Um, so I really recommend people listen to authors of colour about this rather than me. Um, I'm just noticing, you know, where I've seen it happen in the industry I work in and where I'm trying to kind of, uh, you know, note that um, and speak about how that can impact people's mental health, because that constant buildup of it is the inescapableness is incredibly detrimental that can be incredibly damaging because, it, as I say, it's inescapable and painful and really, really can impact a person's experience themselves and their safety in the world. I think this is kind of the last section, if you will, that I, I want to ask you about. Um, and you know, thank you for your time today. It's been incredible. Moving into trauma response to technology, I made a note of something you said during a 
conference on data and trauma, because we want to ethically engage our audiences, we have to take trauma into account. And I think this is maybe a bit of a segue into what we were just talking about, or you were just talking about. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Okay, so this is work from, I was very lucky to get a research fellowship with um, the Southwest Creative Technology Network with um, the University of the West of England and a couple of universities were, were together on this research fellowship um, into data. So I was exploring um, how uh, people with high, marginalized people with high trauma loads can safely engage with data. When we think about engagement, uh, we want people to engage with our work and we want kind of to get clicks or to get eyeballs or to get views or to get users or to get all that thing through. And what people I think are often missing is the factor of trauma in that. So I developed, I did, I, I did research and I developed a methodology which can run alongside your engagement methodology for whatever engagement methodology you use for your technology or your marketing or your design. So these are actually, I'm calling it the Traumula because it makes me smile when I say it. And um, I have uh, three, tra three principles of trauma-informed design and, and, and technological innovation, which actually um, you can find at bit.ly forward slash trauma principles, capital T, capital P. Um, and you can actually just download my three principles there. I've just, they're just freely available in the hope that people will actually use them. And it, it's, it's ways of thinking about trauma as we are creating something in the world, just to make sure that our design is trauma informed, because otherwise, where are we locating the trauma and the responsibility? Again, you're locating it in the individual. You're saying, well, we can't design for everybody. And people are gonna have loads of things, can't they? And so they'll have to work it out. Hold on a second, because we would design, you know, people make uh, psychographics for their users. We get really specific sometimes about who we're working with and what the future user will be. And I believe trauma needs to be taken into account with that because we, we're working with audiences there will be trauma survivors in those audiences. Sometimes just significant amounts. We have millions of trauma survivors in the world. Filtering content that could maybe be a trigger. Are, are there any useful tips that you could share there? Yes. So then I did another research project because um, why not? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> So then I did a research and design uh, project um, with Cardiff University and the BBC, um, working on uh, how we can titrate delivery of, of news or difficult information or triggering content in a way that can be worked with. So we're not just blocking out everything and then you're kind of left with this gap and you don't really know what's going on in the world. The main thing with that, I think, is, you know, the difficulty is to know what's triggering for you, um, which sounds silly because of course you know. But actually, often people don't, because when you get triggered, you can often get um, you go into an activation response. You can get very dissociated, very out of body. Um, you can feel very spacey or or very overwhelmed with emotions. And so actually really parsing out what happened there can be quite difficult. What I tend to look for instead of um, kind of trying to hunt the triggers down, I instead tend to work with what we, at least at the beginning, in one of the first steps, is to work with what do we do when we notice we're triggered. Mm. So once we notice we've gone into an alert response, what do we do then that actually brings us back? What do we do? Um, and we can look at, at self-soothing and how to handle that. Yeah. Um, because uh, that, that can just be, um, yeah, a, a way to respond that we have some engagement with um, and then we can start uh, start there. I do, I do also have a guide of what to do 
um, when you've noticed, when you've been scrolling for hours and you've noticed something's gone wrong. Mm. And that's at my Gumroad, which I believe is Gumroad forward slash Grace Quantock. I find my biggest trigger or something it's a platform that doesn't make me feel great and I don't know why it's it's this one in particular but Instagram so I have to really like consciously limit my time I I, there's something about images I don't know that I just it doesn't make me feel good and I I don't know if it's because a lot of it is very ingenuine people's lives aren't that great or whether I'm thinking, well, my life doesn't look like that. It's probably a combination of the both. But for me, Instagram is, is yeah, it's, it's triggering for me. Yeah, Instagram is tricky. Instagram, it can, you know, it can be very activating. You know, it can really kind of start to make us distressed. Or for you, it triggers your anxiety, as I'm hearing. So, you know, as you say, it can, sometimes some of us are very visual and kind of visuals will really sit with us. So like if we ha- if we hear a story, we might have an image of that story in our heads and it's the image that sits with us. For me, I'm quite kind of word based. So it's the words somebody that said, said would stay. I, I, I'd hear that afterwards. But, you know, if you are very visual, then that's something just to really notice and think, huh, that's what really goes in for me. That's something I have worked with just it's not a long-term solution, but it's a um, it's a kind of uh, a management in the middle. Is that some people will actually create? You probably heard of, of Instagram accounts, kind of secret Instagrams. Of uh, uh, what's it called? A uh, uh, f- Instagram. Finster- uh, like F I N. This is like your second kind of secret Instagram account. So what some people do is create multiple Instagram accounts and some of them they would actually fill. Perhaps you'd have one filled with very genuine photographs, with with people who you knew posted relatively unvarnished or people perhaps who are very body positive or people who are just your really close friends. Um, And in that way, you're curating. You're becoming your editor of your own feed. And, you know, I mean, Mm. I, I took a break from Instagram for a long time because I realised that my favourite photograph in my whole feed was one of my late dog, Bertie, who was a rescue boarder. It was my favourite photograph of him. He was sitting in a ray of sunlight looking beautiful and regal. But actually, he was sitting on our back doorstep in our council house in the South Wales Valleys in front of the, wheelie, the black wheelie bin. <laughs> and I had just kind of, kind of cropped it so yeah. that... Um, didn't see the wheelie bin behind him mm. and you just saw him against a dark background perception it's, is everything and it's about you know what is up to me to be able to curate I wouldn't want to frame a photograph of him in front of the wheelie bin necessarily but I wouldn't want to pretend that he wasn't there either and so you know curating our own accounts of, of, of accounts that actually don't you know noticing within that which of the photographs is it the ones of gleaming kitchens marble countertops you know what what tends to be for us the one that makes me go and where does it make me go does it make me go my body size is the wrong size I don't earn enough money you know I'm I'm not professionally successful in the way this person and just you know noticing some of that and just how we take care of ourselves after that and if we need to kind of have an online watering hole that's that is a little more consciously curated there's nothing I detest more than maybe I'm going for a job or maybe it's like I'm being considered for something and you've got to write down how many Instagram followers you have or how many mm-hmm. Facebook followers do you have and I'm like 
well, I could just buy 100,000 if that's going to be the thing that seals the deal, but it's the fakeness of it, you know? It's the, it's the fakeness of it that just doesn't sit with me at all, but it's kind of embedded into being a DJ, being a presenter, you know? It is. It is. And, you know, what, what you might want to do then in some ways is to create your own little account that you use personally. So that's the one you scroll on when you're bored or you're waiting for something. And then the professional one is the one you go in and kind of like in blocks of time when you're aware. This might be tough to go to. But again, you know, we're talking about companies and expectations which kind of are OK with eating your personal life and your mental health there is an expectation for you to be always on, always using it and having those numbers. And there's the sense that because the internet is arguably limitless, mm. our follower numbers could be, theoretically, everybody on the internet. Mm. And so because they're not, we failed. You know, because of that, oh, yeah. you know, it could be and it isn't. Um, and I think then, you know, exactly as you're doing, it's the recognising that, I could just buy it. You know, th this is the the um, the difficulty in my industry and I'm going to recognise that I have to meet that to some extent, but I'm going to kind of try and keep a little bit of space between that and my own recognition of myself. But it's, what we're talking about, it's tough. It's tough to do. It's made tough to do. Absolutely. I want to, one final time, back circle back to the question from our book group which is how can we learn to live well in a society not designed for us and, and and just because we've gone into like social media and technology the digital footprint that follows around us around everywhere that is another one in terms of mental health again you know in a society that's not air quote designed for us you're being bombarded then aren't you with images and whatnot it's brutal it absolutely and you know you can't kind of say to people to look away because often the social media is also where their community lives yeah yeah so it's also where like for me disability twitter lives on twitter mm. and you know i can get you know fantastic opportunities through there but it can also be the time where people come up can come on posts and you know say incredibly harmful things or threaten people as we all know the threats that can happen on twitter and things like that and yeah the trolls trolls so this this is you know a microcosm then of what we see in the in the greater world but actually the very places we need to access so for example um just say very briefly um one of my sisters is also disabled she's uh ambulatory so she can walk um and she was running in a park locally and um a, a man started following her and she's told him to leave and he wouldn't stop and kept trying to follow her and, and kind of get near her. And, you know, my grandmother's rang me about this, Grace, you know, what should we do? I said, well, you know, <laughs> I, we, can, we, can, we can try and call the police. I don't, I don't know what will happen. Let him be uncomfortable, you know, say back off, you know, say, no, man is following me. Stop following me, scream, you know, let him be uncomfortable. Yeah. Let it be a but only if she's safe to do that. I said, you know, I don't know. Can I send one of my friends to come and run with you? Like, what can we do? So COVID restrictions is very difficult. But, you know, my grandmother said, I'm going to go to the park with her. I said, are you, grandma? She said, yes, I'm going to go to the park with your sister. And then that she can say to that man, I'm going to see my grandmother now. She's waiting for me. And actually, apparently that, that did help, which is wonderful. But grandma said, Grace, you know, why do people follow? Well, why, why do men do this? I said, listen, we have studies that show that teenage girls from the age of 13 onwards literally have smaller maps that they travel 
than, than male teenagers. They spend more time in their bedrooms, in a park, they spend more time under the trees, they do less exercise because people are harassed so often. Of course, this of course goes incredibly more for women who are women of color, disabled women, uh, people who are visibly queer or trans. So, you know, all this means that when we are out in the world, you know, many, many people are, are harmed or at risk. And so we kind of pull in and, and, and struggle for how to do things. But we need to go out in the world because the park is where we need to exercise or the job is where we need to go to earn money or the shop is where we need to go to buy food. So we have to go to these places. We have to be humans in the world. But then we're interacting with people there who feel able to impinge upon us, to, to harm us or to speak to us or, or, or to just, you know, be, be harmful in some way. And I think some of it, at least for me, has been acknowledging that that is a thing which is not okay. Because at the beginning, I used to think, well, I must be doing something wrong. You know, perhaps if like you, I tried to make my internet penis bigger, perhaps I'd feel better. Or, you know, perhaps if I, um, you know, had uh, different style jogging bottoms in the park from, for my, my wheelchair exercises, then I'd feel better. Okay, your internet penis could be, was never going to be big enough for how it's expected to be. You're never going to have the right equipment. Your body is never going to conform to the expectations of a woman's body because those expectations are not what humans can reach. They are not what human bodies look like. Mm. They are what photoshopped images mm -hmm. look like, actually. And being pulled into something that doesn't exist is resistance. But again, then we're not orienting the problem in me as a me as an individual and saying, I just don't come up to scratch. We're looking at the very system that's calling me and telling me that and saying, huh, who put that in place? One question to a lot of clients, whose voice is that? Who does that belong to who's saying these words to us, who's saying we're not enough or we're too much of this and that? And how do we hand it back to whatever person or system or community or moment that that happened in? Because it's not ours to carry. And I think when we don't carry it anymore, it frees up a huge amount of energy and time and capacity for what we actually do want to do in our lives. This has just been incredible from start to finish. I want to quote you again with something you said, I don't know if it was on your website or a talk, but um, you can live well with pain and illness every single day. It's definitely the hope that, that while, we, while people are getting free, we can live well as much as possible while we're doing that. Mm, absolutely. I'm sure people will want to find out more, want to connect with you um to follow grace on social media ironically no trolls allowed please uh, it's at grace underscore quantock which is spelled q-u-a-n-t-o-c-k uh, on instagram and twitter uh, your website is gracequantock.com what's this free offering of pre-appointment pep talks yes I had a lot of clients who were struggling with um, medical appointments, scans, test results, um, job interviews, speaking engagements, them to speak at a funeral, whatever, a date, an appointment, something on the calendar that was starting to produce anxiety, was making mental health be, feel quite difficult. So I created the pre-appointment pep dogs, which is 10 days of audio coaching from me, teaching you skills to manage, to live well, um, and to navigate these difficulties um, and to prepare you for, to do your best at these challenging appointments. So if you go to um, bit.ly forward slash appointment pep talk 
or you can also find them in the top bar at gracecontact.com and you can download 10 days of me talking to you every day giving you a little pet talk um, to get you through the appointment who doesn't want that you can also subscribe to is it among the email postcards from the margins and um, it's i guess a wellness roundup from everything in your space it is absolutely so yeah i do the monthly postcards from the margins which are um, these monthly uh, love letters. It's got a small essay in it. So for example, last month I wrote about um, how to navigate and uh, figure out when people are speaking to us as a marginalized person in a way that um, they're saying one thing but meaning another. And how do we kind of keep ourselves safe when we're trying to self-advocate? So these little mini essays, they're only available at the Postcards to the Margins website uh, th th through the newsletter. You'll also get a copy of pre-appointment pre pet talks if you sign up there too. Fabulous. Again, thank you so much, Grace. This has been incredible. Grace underscore Quantock on Instagram and Twitter. Just check out all of her stuff, guys. Thank you all so much. And thank you, everyone who's listening. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Gabby. It's been an absolute delight. I'm really glad you asked me. An inspiring conversation with an inspiring lady. Thank you again to Grace Quantock for generously giving her time to chat to me for the My Possible Self podcast. I've been Gabby and thank you to you too for graciously giving your time to listen to this episode. I'll see you on the next one. Until then, take care.